All right, I had a great time this past weekend with many of you in the new members class of the Intro to Redeemer class. Uh, Six hours, three on Friday, three on Saturday, enjoying going through some of the, what's the, the vision or the direction of this church? What are some of the distinctives? What are some of the theological identities and some of the the major ministry pursuits and directions that were growing and piecing together for all of us to be involved in meaningful ministry. Uh, there was something that we covered at that time that struck me even as I heard it and I was saying it, so I want to bring it to you. And that is this, uh, in Ezekiel, there was the Valley of Dry Bones, which we're familiar with, many of us. And you remember that story where Ezekiel comes into a valley and it's literally a valley filled with bones. And as he walked uh, in this valley that God had taken to him, it was not a leisurely, pleasant walk. It was a valley of death. And he was appalled by what he saw. He saw Israel as a nation laying in ruins with the bones everywhere. None matching, none together, but just scattered in literal ruins. And God came to him and he was lamenting and in misery over what he saw. And God said to him, Ezekiel, preach, preach the word. And you can imagine Ezekiel's, why? This is a time for lament. Uh, And God told him to preach, and as he began to open his mouth, he began to hear this little clanging of bones coming together. And as he began to preach and hear the clanging, he began to see bones actually uh, get organized and fall into their proper places. And the leg bones connected to them. And he starts seeing all the connections take place. And he starts seeing, he starts preaching some more. And he starts seeing the organs and the tissues and the ligaments and the muscles come together. And by the time he's done preaching, there's a whole host of God's people before him. And it reminded me of a story I once heard of a professor of preaching. And at the end of his class, he used to take his class, his preaching class, to a cemetery locally. And when he would take them to the cemetery, he'd let them walk around on the around the tombstones and and look at the lives and look at the people and be in a sense that they thought, ah, the professor's bringing us here to to impress upon us the urgency of preaching the gospel to people who are lost. And they would walk among and look at the tombs and they would see the lives. They'd see the hardness of life, the brevity of life, that it can be cut short. They would see how long people lived and the incredible Epitaphs that people had left for them, loving families, people unknown to anyone. And then the professor would gather them all together at the end of that day. And barely above a whisper, he would say to them, your hearers are like these. And he'd say, my dear students, you haven't learned to preach until you can preach to the tombstones. I take great comfort, and we should all take great comfort in that. In other words, we all come in here like tombstones every Sunday. And Jesus raises us by the power of his word. So let's physically stand as he spiritually raises us up as we hear Daniel 2, verses 31 through 49. Those of you that are joining us 
in midstream. We have looked at chapter 2. We have this dream that hits a king. He cannot interpret it. It's creating great distress among not only himself, but the kingdom. No one can bring the dream. No one can bring the interpretation. And then all of a sudden, in 31, someone does. And it's Daniel. You saw, O king. He's telling him what his dream was. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image was mighty and of exceeding brightness, and it stood before you. And its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its middle and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chafe of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we'll tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of the potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with a soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so will it mix with one another in marriage. Let's drop down to 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. Its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel, commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and great many gifts and made him ruler over all the province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would take this word and you would grant the life and the raising from the dead work of your word. And we do confess that we are like 
tombstones and that we are dead in ourselves and dead in our sins. And you raise us to life. And so we ask even now you would revive us and those that don't know you, you would revive in resurrecting them in Christ. And those that do continue to cause us to be revived and renewed for the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, the scene has shifted in Daniel. Tremendous scene has shifted. We're moving from distress of a dream to the declaration of the dream and its interpretation. Remember, no one could figure out what the dream was and say it back to the king, and no one could tell its interpretation. So this major shift is taking place where distress and desperation is giving way to declaration of the dream and its interpretation. Now, this shift marks an incredible turn of events for Daniel, and it marks an incredible turn of events for all of God's people in all ages. Because this shift ends up being the pivotal point in which we fix our hope amidst all the terrors of darkness. In other words, when we're faced with despair and we're faced with our sin's guilt, this shift marks our only hope. When you're faced with the the stresses and the strains and the tough times and the troubles and the tribulations in this world's realm, the shift that's taking place here is your only hope. When you begin to look at the tug of temptation and the ugly attraction of sin that it has to us, this shift is our only hope. When you begin to pull out and think about your life in a, in a very uh, honest, self-reflected way, and you say, you know, when I look at my life, I'm not, I'm not pleased with how I've been used and lack of being used for things of ultimate security and ultimate significance in the kingdom of God. And when you have those times, how do you go forward? The shift in this passage is your only hope. When you're humiliated and sinned against and disrespected and you're under the the power of persecution, this shift is your only hope. And so what we're going to see here in Daniel 2 is that this shift is your only hope amidst all the terrors of darkness. Every single one of them. And so even right now, I want you to be thinking about that terror of darkness that darkens your soul right now. And we're going to deal with that one. The one that you're aware of. And there might be more that come in even as we start talking, but I want you to see that the shift we're going to look at crushes it, breaks it to pieces. So what is the shift? Well, we're going to do two things. We're going to mark that shift, and then we're going to make some applications. So first, we've got to see what the shift is, but we're going to enter into the story because you have to feel the shift. You've got to be right there in there with Daniel and with Israel, and you've got to feel what's taking place and all of a sudden, how it all just turns on a, on a pivot point. And everything moves from a ruin to a reigning. Okay? All right, so let's look. Well, he was glad for the smoke all around Jerusalem because it hit his tears. He was completely overwhelmed with all the events going on all around him. If you can imagine Jerusalem in smoke, you can imagine people torn from loved ones and from children, from their parents, 
All he could remember is the incredible look on his mom's face when they tore her hands from around his neck and her screams as they dragged her away and dragged him away. He wondered if he'd ever see his family again. He was fighting the urge to fight to the death. As this army is marching throughout Jerusalem and taking all the nobility and the fine-looking youths and the most elite of Israel away to Babylon. He was glad for the long walk to Babylon. He was glad because it helped him deal with his pain. He was glad that he found three of his good buddies in Babylon. It helped him deal with his humiliation. Having to face the the reality of becoming a eunuch. Being made to master an enemy culture. And humiliation upon all humiliation. Having to master something that's forbidden by the Lord. The dark arts of divination. He had to change his name, humiliation. He had a name that was strong for God. He had a name that when he walked in places, it displayed and proclaimed the glory of God. And now when he walks into places, he has a name that says, maybe one of the gods of the pantheon will help you. Maybe. He was made to take abuse and disrespect from the Babylonian princes and royalty that are training right alongside each other. Can you imagine those type of competitions and that kind of hazing? It makes fraternities and it makes the military look like a piece of cake. He was made to serve an unbelieving king in an unbelieving kingdom. So he's glad he had three buddies. Three buddies he could lean on while he's being humiliated. Daniel's future had changed radically. It wasn't what he dreamed of. It wasn't what he planned for when he was a young man. And when he would think about his future, he thought just like any young man would. In the prime of his, quote, life, he's matured physically. The future is wide open. He thought and longed of serving Yahweh and Yahweh's land among Yahweh's people. Security and significance matter and meaning for the glory of God. Where God's temple is, where his presence is. And just like every young man, he probably thought of a future with a beautiful and loving wife. The incredible blessings and rewards of a lasting legacy of children. You can imagine the hopeful aspirations of a a meaningful engagement in a future vocation and learning to relate in biblical community with those around him. Those were his aspirations. Those were his desires. That's what he thought his future was. And now as he's awoken from his daydream and by a shadow that comes moving across the palace room floor because the guy that stood in the doorway blocked out the sun. Arioch, chief of Nebuchadnezzar's guards. Medals everywhere if he had medals back then. Years of campaigning while Nebuchadnezzar conquered the known world, this was the man that was at his right hand and had shown himself to be head and shoulders above everybody. Chief guard. And in his hand, he holds a decree. In his hand, he holds Daniel's execution orders. (laughs) 
Daniel must die immediately along with his three friends and along with every professional Babylonian consultant in all the kingdom. And this is when we learn of Nebuchadnezzar's disturbing dream because Daniel, remember how he responds. You've got the grim reaper coming through your door and it says, and let's look how he responds. It's wonderful. Look in uh, verse 13, 14. Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch. Remember, we looked at that last week. Wisdom, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill all the wise men of Babylon. This is where he began to find out from Arioch, okay, what, what, what's happened here? Why are you here? Why do you look like that? What's taking place? And he finds out about the king's dream. The disturbing dream, and he finds out the resulting despair and desperation that's starting to sweep the kingdom. Starts with the king, moved to the consultants, now the whole kingdom, because no one, no one can understand the dream. No one knows anything about the wisdom behind the dream. No one has the light to understand what's taking place. No one can give the dream or its interpretation. No one could see. No one had understanding. No one had wisdom. No one had light. And so when the Babylonian wise men told Nebuchadnezzar in verse 11 that no human being can bring this kind of light, Nebuchadnezzar, look at verse 11. The thing that the king asks is difficult. No one can show the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Oh, king, come on. You're going against the ancient Near Eastern traditions. You know you're supposed to tell us the dream. We'll give you a good interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar says, no, you're going to tell me the dream. And interpretation, because I got to know whether you can bring the light. Do you have the light? No one has the light. But no human can bring that kind of light. Only God can bring this kind of light. And what we find here is that God brings this kind of light in Daniel 2 through an appointed agent. That's what's so fascinating. I mean, remember chapter 1. There's three great words in chapter 1. God gave, verse 2, God gave, I think it's 15, God gave, 17. God giving, he's absolutely doing the direct action in all of chapter 1. When everything is in chaos and everything looks a certain way, the, the curtain is pulled back behind the stage. Yes, we're in real time, real drama, real people. We look and see these things are taking place. Jerusalem's taken away, all the... Israelite elite taken away to Babylon, but then the the curtain pulls back and we see God did this. God did this. God did this. Directly acting. But then when we get into two, it changes. There's a shift. We don't see God directly acting at all. We see him acting through an appointed agent. What we call a mediator. Now, when we look at the dream, because we are, I think we're going to, I have to, I think. I have to look at the dream. I guess we've got to look at what the iron means, and we've got to look at what the statue's about, and what kingdoms it talks about, and we'll get to that. And when we look at the content of this dream, what we'll focus on is that Daniel points further to the appointed agent. God is shifting from working directly to indirectly, but in doing so, he's elevating how he does it is through an appointed agent or appointed mediator. And that's what we're going to see. 
But right now we've got this appointed agent, Daniel, telling Nebuchadnezzar the dream and the interpretation. So here comes the shift we've been looking for. How does Nebuchadnezzar respond to Daniel? Daniel tells him the dream, tells him the interpretation. Then how does he respond? Look at verse 46. The king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face, paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. Jump down to 48. Then the king gave Daniel high honors, great many gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. 49. Daniel knows he's riding the high chariot right now, so he says, okay, I'm going to really push it. My three buddies, I want you to make them prefix, or actually he requests them to be appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, and so they are. What must that have felt like for Daniel? What must it have felt like for Daniel to have the most powerful pagan king in all the world prostrate at his feet? The one who just seconds ago was itching to kill him. The one who had so much power and control over him, all he had to do was write a couple words on a sheet of paper. And his life ends. So much power and so much control over them that all he has to do, if Daniel comes in with a bad haircut, take the whole thing off at the neckline. The one who has been the cause of so much heartache tore him from his family, tore him from his parents, tore him from his land, tore him from Yahweh's place of worship, the temple, tore him from everything he loved, humiliated him, made him suffer, brought so much pain, and he's bowing at his feet like he's a god. What must that have felt like? Can you imagine? What a shift. What a shift. What would it feel like? Well, Paul says it feels like this more than a conqueror. Romans 8, Paul says, let the tribulation come. Let distress come. Let nakedness come. Let the sword come. Let famine come. Let it all come. Because I'm more than a conqueror. That's how Paul would have said it. I'm more than a conqueror. All of it bows at my feet. If we go to Peter, Peter would have said it this way. Peter says it feels like inheriting glory. Paul says it looks like more than a conqueror. Peter says it's like, it's like inheriting glory. It's this imperishable glory. It doesn't perish. It doesn't die. No one can take it from you. He says it's an undefiled glory. It can't sour. It can't stink. It can't corrupt. It's perfect and it's pure forever. It's an unfading glory. It never loses its shine, never loses its beauty, never loses its splendor, never loses its radiance. It's continual, perpetual perfection and glory and joy and pleasure and delight. Just the other day, I think it was just yesterday, I said, I was complaining about one of my shirts. I have a shirt and I've had it for six years. And it's starting, you know, to get threadbare. And I like this shirt. And I started complaining. I said, honey, this shirt's wearing out. And she looked at me like, do you expect everything to remain perfect? 
Yeah. Don't you? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I do. I was made for that. You were made for that. Glory, unfading, imperishable glory. If you were John, John would say it feels like this. When he's describing Daniel and he sees Daniel and he sees Nebuchadnezzar at Daniel's feet, John says, it looks like reigning with God. In Revelation, he uses phrases like, you're made a kingdom and you're one who conquers. And so when you're made a kingdom and you're one who conquers, all these things fall at your feet. You can't be touched by corruption. You can't be touched by death. You can't be touched by sin. You can't be touched by sickness. Remember in Revelation, you can't be touched by sadness. You can't be touched by anything because you're a kingdom and you reign with God. All things fall at your feet. All things bow at your feet. If you're one of the heroes in, heroes in Hebrews, what do we got? We got a whole list. Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Sarah, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, the great cloud of witnesses. They would say it feels like the kingdom of God. A kingdom of glory and greatness, a kingdom of love and life and light, a kingdom of beauty and bounty, a kingdom of his presence and his power and ultra perfection, a kingdom that's so great it's worth waiting for, the heroes would say. A kingdom that's so great that when you're here in the present, you say no to the fleeting pleasures of sin because the bounty there is so much better. A kingdom that's so great that you trust God for it and you'll wander around as a pilgrim to get it. A kingdom that's so great that you'll be tortured, as it says in Hebrews 11. You'll be mocked. You'll be flogged. You'll be cut by the sword. You'll be sawn in two because it's greater. Daniel is experiencing what every son and daughter of God presently experiences right now. The certainty of victory. Let that sink in. Daniel is experiencing what you and I have. The certainty of victory. The shift goes from ruin to reigning. And it's a shift that marks out a certainty in victory. And how did this shift take place? How do you go from ruin to reigning? I mean, how do you know? How do you know that there's a certainty of victory for you? You're a child of God. You're a son and daughter of the king. You're an heir of the king. How do you know? How do you know there is a certain victory for you? And then what does that certain victory do for you now in the present? How does that reality flesh itself out for you right now in this world's realm? As you go through the terrors of darkness, as you have that particular dark shadow in your soul that you can name right now, how does it do this? Well, here's the answer, and let's unpack it. This, and now we get a little bit into the dream here. We get a little bit into the interpretation. Here's the answer. I'll unpack it, but we'll save the majority for it next week. The reason why is because of the uncarved rock. 
Anytime the scripture talks about an uncarved rock, there's an uncarved rock in here and there's an uncarved mountain in here, isn't there? And when it talks about being uncarved, what it's saying is human hands can't make it. It's uncarved. It's unmade by human hands, so it's unworked by humans. That there's a rock in here that's unworked that actually does the work. That's the point. And because of that rock, there's the certainty of victory. If you were a famous hymn writer, you'd say, because of the rock of ages, cleft for me. Verse 34 contains the rock in the dream. Let's look at it. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image, of, the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Let's look at the interpretation. Go to verse 44, 45. And in those days, the kings of God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to you, King, this reality. Right now, we need to know, we're going to look at this in detail, but right now we need to know that Jesus applied the rock of Daniel 2 to himself. Isn't that fascinating? Now, remember, we're going to go to Luke 20. You can go there if you want, but I'm going to tell you about it. In Luke 20, Jesus takes this Daniel 2 and he applies it to himself. Remember, the question is, how does the shift take place? How can Daniel know that what's happening before him is happening? In other words, why is Nebuchadnezzar falling at his feet? Nebuchadnezzar, the epitome, the the model of all the terrors of darkness that have haunted him and his three friends, bowing at his feet. And how do we, as people of God in this day, in this age, how do we know there's a certainty of victory? How do you know that? Well, Jesus applies this rock here to himself. And remember, it's in the parable of the wicked tenants in Luke 20. Okay, now remember what's happened on in that story. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of the day. And he talks to them about a man who has a great land or vineyard. And the man goes away. He goes overseas. He goes to another country far away. And so he leaves behind tenants that will work his vineyard and will work the field. They will rent it. And the way they'll rent it is they'll bring the produce out of the field, the harvest of the vine out of the field and repay it as rent and then give it back to the master, a portion. But then they keep it for themselves and they get to live and raise their families in this great land. All right. So far, so good. Well, it came time to collect. Seasons had gone by. The crops had come up. So the master in another land sends his servant to go collect. These tenants see the servant, and they beat him up, send him away empty-handed. The master sees that, and we're not told necessarily how he responds at that point, but he sends another servant, same thing happens. Third servant, same thing happens. And then the parable is asked, the master says, what shall I do? And the answer is, I will send my son, my beloved son. And Jesus describes the story as the beloved son is approaching. The tenants see him coming down the street, down the burrow. And they said, there's the heir. Let's kill him so we can have the inheritance. 
Jesus then turns to the people he's talking to, the religious leaders, and he applies what he says right there, that he's the heir, he's the master's beloved son, and he's the rock in Daniel 2. And in verse 18 in Luke 20, he says this, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And the religious leaders, it says, knew that Jesus was talking about them. And then the next verse said, from that hour, they sought to kill him. Just like the tenants. And what we see here is that though they try, and though every terror of darkness tries to get you, what Jesus is saying, which is most certain, is that every single terror of darkness gets crushed by me. Because I'm the rock in Daniel. And I'm a rock that comes and hits every terror. And that's what this beast-like statue that we're going to see looks like. Remember, the beasts represent everything that's contrary to God's goodness and contrary to the goodness of his creation. It's always the beasts in Revelation or the beasts in Daniel or the beasts in Scripture are all these, these mythological beings that come out of corruption and they're just hideous and shocking and frightening, as they say in Daniel. And they're strong and they're powerful and they're always a combination of twisted creation. They've got a little bit of creation in them, but it's always uglier and more terrifying. And Jesus says, I'm the rock and I'm the rock that hits these things. I crush every terror in the darkness and I crush it to such an extent. Notice what the text is saying, that he breaks it into such small pieces that it's ground to such a fine dust that when it hits the fleshing floor and the wind blows, it blows every single piece away. That's how thorough he deals with the terrors of darkness. That's how thorough he deals with every darkness that seeks to get you. He makes every one of them bow at your feet. That's the point. And so what we find is that in Jesus being the rock, what he's pointing to and what you get in more of a a shadow, skeletal picture, Jesus fills in in Luke 20. And then when he starts moving from Luke 20, what immediately starts putting into place is his cross and his crown. And that what this rock does in rescuing and what this rock does in clashing and breaking and shattering into small pieces, all the terrors of darkness, it's the cross that does it. And so the cross takes all the terrors of sin, whether it's power and its dominion over us, whether it's penalty, which is an eternal death and separation from God, or whether it's this incredible presence that plagues us until one day it's gone. It crushes it all. It crushes a guilty conscience. It crushes every condemnation. It crushes Satan's evil accusations against you. Paul says, look, there's no condemnation anymore because the rock crushes all your enemies. And what the cross does in crushing, the crown does in creating, because what the, the, what the crown does, is it actually creates new life and revives you and gives you a new heavens and a new earth and it brings in a new creation It's a new reality. You get a new heart and a new mind, new life that's now able to see God and able to respond to God and able to have new obedience to God. Again, the cross is crushing. The crown is creating. The rock does it all. That's the point. And because of the cross and the crown, 
All who rely on the rock have every single terror of darkness bow at their feet. So let's make some immediate applications. Here's application number one. The cross and the crown carry certain victory over every single terror of darkness that you face. The cross and the crown, the rock, carries certain victory over every single terror of darkness that you face. Let's talk about one. Let's talk about those of us that that don't come from a religious background and those of us that don't come from a church background. That might be some of you and that might be some of you in the past. Some of us had a church background. Some of us had a religious background. Many of us didn't have a religious background. I grew up in an area where you're into the third generation of those who have not gone to church, never had a religious background. In the New England area, you're at generation after generation now of people who have no religious background. And here that sounds like, you've got to be kidding me. Everybody goes to church around here, right? Well, let's talk about many of us here that didn't grow up going to church and don't have a religious background. And what happens when there's this major terror that you become aware of in your life? And that terror is you become awakened to the reality that you're a sinner. And that God has a a holy, heavy foot on sin. And you begin to realize that every single sin deserves His justice, His displeasure, Him to step on you. Boy, that's a terror. And you know what you can do? When you rely on the rock and rely on the cross, rely on the crown of his resurrection, that terror bows at your feet. Just like Nebuchadnezzar. Your sin will bow at your feet. Your guilt will bow at your feet. Every threat will bow at your feet. Because of the rock. Now those of us that are in the church and have grown up in a religious kind of way. The cross and the crown carry certain victory over every single terror of darkness, but this certain victory comes in stages, doesn't it? We know it comes in stages. We know that at present it's partial, but we know in the future it's full. We know that right now we get a partial sense of this victory, but we know in the future we get a full sense of this victory. We know that Daniel still has ten more chapters to go. He's got ten more chapters where he's still in, and he's still going to get terrors of darkness. Right away in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, it's like he took his dream literally, and he builds this huge figure of himself. That's what we're going to see in chapter 3. And the first guys that don't bow down to it are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So the terrors are back and are thrown into a fiery furnace. But what's happening in Daniel is that you get a preview. He gets a preview of what the ultimate end is of all the terrors of darkness. It's almost like, he again, he's in the ruin and all of a sudden he comes to this rain and he sees Nebuchadnezzar bow at his feet. And what an incredible turn of events for him. A major shift. And he gets this preview that he actually looks at and he says, the rock in that dream caused this. And the rock in that dream 
it will always be like this one day. I get partial experience of the certainty of victory, and then one day I get the full. And what was very interesting, and what's very interesting for us to apply right now, when we see the future full realization of victory, it pushes into the present strength now to endure. In other words, how do you live in the present with a partial victory experience of it? A partial certainty. The answer is faith in the future. A faith in the future presses in strength, presses in power for you to withstand the terrors now. And that's what we begin to see illustrated through the rest of the book of Daniel. So what we're to do is to put our faith in the future. There's a full, there's a full, complete, certain victory that's coming. It comes in stages. Remember this rock that comes in and it crushes. It's describing two stages. If you go throughout the Old Testament... You get confused sometimes because it's almost like when it talks about the day of the Lord, it, it, it only sees this way. But it doesn't see that there's the day of the Lord has a first coming and a second coming. And sometimes when the Old Testament writers are writing, they, they mix these two together. And it's just called the day of the Lord. And when you look at the particular rock and what it does, it's describing what Jesus come when he arrives in his cross and his resurrection. But it's also describing what will one day take place at the consummation when he comes as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Do you see what happens? The first and the second, all the work of Jesus is blended together and not necessarily in every part in the Old Testament is it teased out to show you the stages Sometimes it just comes in one big package and context of the whole Bible helps you tease out the stages. So right now, you and I know that the partial certainty or fulfillment is ours. The full fulfillment is in the second coming to come. The new heavens and the new earth. So how do you live now? You live by faith in that future. That's how you live. In other words, what does it feel like to know one day all your sin will bow at your feet? What does it feel like, Jeff Hatton, to know one day all your sin will bow at your feet? It feels like strength to fight my sin now. What does it feel like, Jeff Hatton, to know one day all temptation will bow at your feet? It feels like strength to resist temptation now. What does it feel like one day to know all your threats and all your terrors and all your fears, all your distresses, all your sadness and heartache and suffering will bow at your feet one day? It feels like comfort and healing and grace and help right now. What does it feel like to know that every demon, every discouragement, every depression, every nameless despair, every sin that's got your lunch bows at your feet one day? Ah, it feels like strength right now. It feels like you will bow to me. One day. So I will fight you by the grace of God right now. 
And so now when you hear verses like in Peter, when it says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And when you hear Ephesians 6 and it says, put on the full armor of God. If you know your victory is certain, if you know everything's going to bow at your feet and you know right now you stand amidst the assaults. You have the full armor of God right now in the present. You know that a victory is full and certain to come. And what you can do is when, when the whispers of despair, you know how despair works and how depression works and how discouragement works. It whispers these certainties, the certainties of despair. What you can do, because you know one day it will bow at your feet, and it doesn't matter if it's a situational depression, it doesn't matter if it's a clinical or a chemical or however they're labeled today. You know what you struggle with, whether you have a personality or a melancholy spirit that has a propensity towards it, or whether a situation that seems to trigger it and you're in it now. It really doesn't matter, ultimately. What ultimately matters is one day it will bow at your feet. And so right now, when it whispers its certainties of despair, you can say, no. There are no more certainties of despair for me. There is only a certainty of victory for me. You will bow to me. And the Holy Spirit is pushing in power, pushing in the armor of God, lifting the shield of faith, grabbing the sword of the Spirit, Pushing in God's presence and his comfort and his help and his love because you know the rock has done it already. The cross is certain. The crown is certain. Right now I get partial. One day I get full. So I can live by faith in the future. And live with hope. Okay. Many of you right now, as I mentioned at the beginning, can point to that particular terror of darkness. And you've got it, right? You got it for me. You've been holding it for me. You've got it there in your mind. You know what it's like in your heart. And you know that it might be that certain sin that you seem to continue to have to deal with. Or you're always confessing it. And quite frankly, you really don't believe it's going to go away. And you can't imagine having lesser affection for it. Maybe it has to do with a certain conflict you're facing in a relationship. Or maybe it's just that I just have that nameless, dark, foggy depressive cloud over me and I can't figure it out. Or maybe it's a future that you're uncertain about. Whatever it is, you got the point, right? It's in your life. It darkens your soul. This is what I want you to do. What would it feel like right now to see that darkness bow at your feet? What would it look like right now? What would it look like right now? Daniel would say, it looks like Nebuchadnezzar prostrate before me. Paul would say, it looks like you're more than a conqueror. Peter would say, it looks like you're inheriting glory. John would say, it looks like the reign of God in your life. And all the heroes in Hebrew, they would say, it's the kingdom of God. Look at us. We surround you. All because of a rock. So the call is to all of us in this passage. Mark this shift. 
ruin to reign, all because of a rock that shatters every piece of darkness to dust. That's what happens to it. So, brothers and sisters, what's the call for you and what's the call for me? It's to live by faith that it's really true. It's to rely on the rock, not rely on your feelings and not rely on your depression and not rely on your sin and not rely on your faith, but rely on the rock. And when that happens, there's this gracious work that gets pushed into your life and you can feel your heart get strengthened and your mind starts thinking rationally. You get your sanity back. Amen.